Magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, this week is the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. To commemorate the anniversary, the nation has posted a new documentary short. It's called Ukrainians in Exile. We'll speak with the filmmaker Yannick Ambrose. But first, Florida is going to be the most important state to watch in the 2024 election. That's what Amy Littlefield says. She will explain in a minute. Now it's time to talk about politics in Florida, where an abortion rights amendment has gotten enough signatures to qualify for the November ballot. For that story, we turn to Amy Littlefield. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent and a journalist who focuses on reproductive rights, health care, and religion. Amy Littlefield, welcome back. Hi, John. It's great to be back with you. You say Florida is going to be the most important state to watch in the 2024 election. I have a lot of political friends who disagree with that, who say Florida (laughs) has become a red state. Let's face it. Trump won the state in 2016 and 2020. The legislature has a Republican supermajority. Nevertheless, you think Florida is still a battleground state. Why is that? I know I'm fighting an uphill battle here, John, to convince people that Florida is in play. Okay, Uh, and let's not forget that the governor, Ron DeSantis, recently considered a uh, presidential contender, you know, is a man who likes to send asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard, you know, as a fun hobby on the side. But it's time to start taking Florida seriously. And one of the reasons, John, is that Florida has to be important because it is the last bastion of abortion access in the Southeast. The South is basically a funnel of states where abortion is banned that are all directing patients into Florida. And I have to say, you know, I've got my abortion goggles on. I will admit that. That is how I look at everything. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but you know what? Flo- abortion has the power to do things at the ballot box that people assume are impossible. And we have seen that with Michigan, you know, where an abortion rights ballot measure helped Democrats get trifecta control of the state government for the first time in years. We saw that in 2022 in Kentucky, a state that has among the highest percentages of anti-abortion residents in the country, where voters rejected an amendment declaring there's no right to abortion in the state constitution. So especially in the wake of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade and the collective outrage going on and the momentum behind these ballot initiatives, I think nothing is impossible. And I also think it'll be fascinating to see, you know, Florida is such a diverse and big state, so representative of the country in so many ways. It'll be fascinating to see how this plays out there. Lots to talk about. Florida is one of a dozen states that have abortion rights initiatives on the ballot or in the process of qualifying to get enough signatures. Arizona is one of them. There are a lot of obstacles to getting this initiative before the voters in Florida, but the group organizing it, Floridians Protecting Freedom, has already done quite a bit. What have they accomplished so far? Florida has so many hurdles that have to be cleared in order to get a measure on the ballot. They had to gather and verify almost 900,000 signatures from at least half of the state's 28 congressional districts. And they blew past even their own expectations, I think, on that one. They verified close to a million signatures. 
And then, of course, they've got, you know, the the DeSantis administration and anti-abortion state officials, including Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody, who have been throwing up, you know, whatever obstacles they can scheme up to try to prevent this thing from getting on the ballot. Florida also has the highest threshold for citizen initiated amendments in the country, which means that in order to pass this amendment, if it makes it onto the ballot, is going to need more than 60 percent of votes. Let me just underline that. Majorities do not rule on Florida amendments. It takes a supermajority, 60%. This is what Ohio voters turned down. But Florida initiatives don't become law unless they get more than 60%. Which is hard, but not impossible. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. What do the polls say about support for abortion rights in Florida? So abortion is really popular, John. I mean, Lauren Brenzel, um, who is leading the campaign there in Florida, said that their polling so far is consistent with about a decade of research in Florida that shows 70 percent and upwards of Floridians support access to safe and legal abortion. So 70. Let me emphasize that. Not 50, not 60, 70 percent support. Abortion is popular, and the campaign is banking on it being popular among Republicans, being popular among unaffiliated voters. And we have seen that play out. I mean, I was on the ground reporting for the nation in Kansas in the wake of the Dobbs decision when everyone was commenting on what a red state Kansas is. I mean, this is the home of George Tiller, the assassinated abortion provider. I mean, we knew the odds there. And yet, Kansas surprised everybody, except those of us who, who you know, have been chanting abortion is popular, you know, at Nazium and driving everyone crazy for years. And Florida does have a history of passing progressive ballot measures, you know, for example, in 2020, making that 60 percent, they got close to 61 percent of Floridians voting in favor of a ballot initiative to raise the minimum wage. And so this is not impossible, although, as you point out, you know, Ohio tried to do this. Abortion opponents in Ohio tried to raise their threshold in order to stop the abortion rights ballot initiative from from passing there. Um, And and Florida's already got that threshold. So, yes, a steep climb. The groups that organize abortion rights initiatives, Florida and everywhere else, are very much aware of the legal obstacles to qualifying, and they have recruited the best and brightest legal experts to draft language for the initiative that anticipates the possible objections that anti-abortion officials will make when these things go before the state Supreme Court. So I want to look exactly at the language of the Florida initiative which I'm sure the best and the brightest legal minds went into drafting. What exactly does the initiative say? The ballot summary that voters are going to see when they head into the ballot box, assuming that this clears you know, the Florida Supreme Court and makes it onto the ballot in November, says no law shall prohibit, penalize, delay or restrict abortion before viability or when necessary to protect the patient's health as determined by the patient's health care provider. This amendment does not change the legislature's constitutional authority to require notification to a parent or guardian before a minor has an abortion. So that last part has been controversial within the abortion rights movement. 
That's right. I mean, there's two parts that have been controversial within the abortion rights movement. One is obviously this is not trying to repeal Florida's existing requirement that minors seeking an abortion need to notify a parent or guardian first. It also has language around viability. Critics who I've talked to within the reproductive health and rights movement say, why are we reviving the ghost of Roe v. Wade, right? This is a, a standard that was in place where abortion states could ban abortion after viability. And this can lead to deeper stigmatization of abortions that take place later in pregnancy. And this question over whether to include this major concession around allowing abortion bans after viability has really divided the movement in a lot of these states where ballot initiatives are being considered, because there are people who say, you know, Roe is gone. We need to start over with a sweeping framework that includes everybody and doesn't leave people behind, including the women of color, the young people who are more likely to, to be pushed later into pregnancy and need an abortion post-viability. And then there's people who say, look, this is Florida or this is Missouri, or, you know, we've got a steep hill to climb here and we've got to, you know, find something that we think has a higher chance of, of winning Republican voters and making it through a very, you know, conservative state Supreme Court. But it forces abortion rights lawyers into this really strange position of having to talk about how important and significant and, and ironclad viability is when, you know, people within the movement would say it's, it's more of a legal standard than actually a medically solid one. Now this is being, this has just been argued before the state Supreme Court and the opponents of this led by, as you say, the state attorney general, what was their, the heart of their argument about why this should be ruled off the ballot? So their argument is that the language that voters were going to see on the ballot was misleading. And, you know, this sort of felt like they were trying to come up with an argument. And they had a lot on their side, even with an argument that seemed pretty tenuous, which is because of the composition of the Florida Supreme Court, right? So five of the seven members who heard this case were appointed by Ron DeSantis. A sixth one is married to a co-author of Florida's six-week abortion ban, which is not currently in effect, um, but could come into effect. Um, depending on what that very same Florida State Supreme Court rules. Um, and so the odds were definitely not, you know, in favor of abortion rights, just based sheerly on the composition of that court. And yet when the court heard the Florida Attorney General's claims about the ballot summary being misleading um, during a hearing on February 7th, it actually went surprisingly well. And that was kind of a nice surprise, I think, for um, the abortion rights supporters in Florida. Um, Chief Justice Carlos Muniz, who's a DeSantis appointee, um, he you know, had led a private courthouse tour for abortion opponents in 2022. Even he seemed skeptical of this argument that the summary was somehow misleading. And he said, the people of Florida aren't stupid. They can figure this out. <laughs> so when will we hear from the Florida State Supreme Court about whether the people in Florida get to vote on abortion rights? So they need to rule by April 1st. Um, so that is when we will know for sure if this initiative has cleared the Florida Supreme Court and will make it to the ballot in November. Now let's assume that it does make it to the ballot. We have to talk about Latinos in Florida, a quarter of the state's population. We are told that Latinos are moving right, that Latinos are becoming Trump supporters, especially Latino men, especially in Florida. What can you tell us about Latino voters in Florida and abortion rights? 
Well, I can tell you that at least one organizer that I talked to, Andrea Mercado, is out to prove you wrong on that point. <laughs> okay. um, she believes that, you know, Latinos, first of all, are a very diverse population in Florida. The demographics have been changing. So she is confident that Latina women especially are going to have their chance to show that they're quite progressive on the abortion rights measure. She pointed out that her mom had uh, made a donation to the campaign. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's going to be, you know, they are, the campaign is gearing up to have a Spanish language arm to really find messaging that's going to work in, in the diversity of Latino communities that they have all across the state. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this ends up changing who shows up. Because of course, it's not just about who lives in Florida. It's about who decides that they care enough to show up and vote on election day. Since that Supreme Court hearing, the Alabama State Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are human beings. Does this have any effect, any implications for the Florida initiative? When, when I watched this Florida Supreme Court hearing on the ballot amendment, there was this curveball that the Chief Justice, Carlos Muniz, came up with where he started asking about personhood. Now, personhood is the holy grail of the anti-abortion movement. It has been always, right? They want to have embryos from the moment of fertilization declared to be human beings with equal rights. This would be catastrophic, of course, for IVF, for birth control, for you know anyone who's pregnant and, and that pregnancy doesn't continue. It's a very sweeping paradigm. It's always been the end goal. And so it was kind of a head scratcher why the chief justice was bringing this up in a hearing that really didn't seem to have anything to do with that. And even the attorney who was making the anti-abortion argument against this amendment for the state was completely caught off guard when Carlos Muniz started asking questions about whether the Florida Constitution protects fetal personhood. And he said, like, uh, to be honest, I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> you know, I'm not I don't really know, you know. And then two days later, Liberty Council, which is a conservative uh, anti-abortion um, organization that's been working with the state of Florida on this, followed up with a briefing saying, hey, we took a look and here's all the sections of Florida law that we think mention legal protection for an unborn child or an unborn person. So they were sort of teeing up this idea that the embry that embryos and fetuses are people under the state constitution institution, which would set up a really historic showdown, right? If, if we have an amendment that passes, it clears all the hurdles and passes, and the Florida Constitution then protects abortion rights. And then we also have a state Supreme Court that seems interested in the argument that the Constitution also protects the personhood of embryos or fetuses. It makes you sort of wonder, like, whether there was some, I don't know, communication here between the, you know, court in Alabama and the one in Florida. But we have this court decision out of Alabama, where they're saying that embryos, that frozen embryos are people, are human beings, and, and really, you know, catering to that personhood argument. And of course, then Liberty Council took the opportunity once that Alabama decision had come down to submit another follow-up briefing to the Florida Supreme Court saying, hey, take a look at this Alabama ruling. This sort of seems like what Chief Justice Muniz was talking about. And isn't this interesting? We can use this as a precedent now to argue that the, the proposed amendment in Florida is actually a no-go. And so, so it's really important to look at how these different arguments are building towards um, fetal personhood, which again, has always been the end game. And of course, in the meantime, it has to be said, you know, I, I really feel for IVF patients in Alabama right now, because yeah. this has been 
extremely distressing for people who want to be pregnant and are going through the process of IVF, which can be very invasive and distressing. And and now they've been thrown into this total um, confusion and limbo while everyone figures out whether IVF can continue in the state. We have to talk about Trump for just a minute. Trump has carefully... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Just a minute. Trump has carefully avoided taking a position on abortion because he wants to get elected and he knows how unpopular it is. Florida has a 15-week abortion ban right now. Lots of other states also have 15 weeks. Uh, We are told that Trump is likely to endorse a 16-week ban. Uh, Maybe I missed something, but... Has 16 weeks been a, a, an issue uh, for the anti-abortion no, movement? No, John, no. I, I, As far as I can tell, it, Trump just made this up. I mean, I have been, I, I've talked to anti-abortion activists. I, I have never heard anyone in the anti-abortion movement say, you know, what we really need is a 16-week abortion ban. I mean, this is so strange because it satisfies no one. It's definitely not far enough for anti-abortion activists. It's too far for abortion rights activists who are saying, um, hello, you know, we're going to go to the ballot and we have we think we have a majority of population even in, you know, red and purple states that are going to support us. So I I assume he's got some idea of what he's doing here, but, you know, it's such an opportunity to just say all of these gestational age bans are so arbitrary, right? I mean, I guess there's no reason why 16 weeks makes any less sense than 15, (laughs) Um, but, you know, here we are. A couple other things about Florida in November that may give us uh, hope. One is that a marijuana legalization initiative has qualified with enough signatures for the ballot. In other states and cities, that has boosted turnout of young people significantly. And finally, Taylor Swift has three concerts in Miami just weeks before Election Day. I wonder if you have any comment on that. Oh, I'm so glad, John. This is just this is a career milestone for me because I I guess I'm coming out for the first time to the nation audience as a Swifty, and <laughs> um, and I'm just delighted that someone's asked me a question about about Taylor Swift. She's got a song called Florida on her you know very closely watched upcoming album. She's got concerts scheduled in Miami. Uh, people are wondering, you know, has she got something planned that's going to help try to tip the scales in Florida? And I, you know what? I believe in the power of abortion. I also believe in the power of Taylor Swift, John. So <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not counting anything out right now in Florida. Taylor Swift's song "Florida" has not been released yet. By any chance, have you heard it? No, John. And if you've heard it and you haven't shared it with me, I'd be very upset. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the release of that album, just like everybody else. Amy Littlefield, you can read her report, Will a Florida Ballot Measure to Protect Abortion Shake Up the State's Politics This November? It's at thenation.com. Thank you, Amy. This was great. Thank you so much, Sean. It's a pleasure. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.
This week is the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has sent 6.5 million Ukrainians into exile, while another 3.7 million people remain forcibly displaced inside the country. To commemorate the anniversary, The Nation has posted a new documentary short. It's called Ukrainians in Exile, and it's made by Yannick Ambrose. He's a film director, producer, and screenwriter, founder of the film production company Assembly Line Entertainment. We reached him today in Los Angeles. Yannick Ambrose, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, the documentary shows Ukrainian women and children getting on trains and buses for lives in exile. It's narrated by a woman named Anya who has stayed in Ukraine, who talks about how the crisis has completely upended her life. The film concludes with Anya saying, please help us. First, tell us a little about your own background, your work before this film. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I've been making uh, films for quite a while now, um, you know, doing a lot of uh, experimental films. I did a documentary about uh, the war on terror and how it impacts civil liberties and civil rights. Um, I mostly moved over into narrative films and I like to kind of talk about uh, political issues in my narrative films and always have, you know, character first in those type of movies. But, um, you know, I would say my family history and background influenced my decision to make this film and typically a film I, you, you plan for years, you write it, you develop it, you this. This was very strange because uh, the invasion happened and I was really shocked. And uh, I think my, you know, family history, my, my grandfather was in uh, a Siberian gulag. And I know it's a totally different, you know, makeup now. But that kind of thing kind of really just pulled me there. I just basically found a flight a couple of weeks in. And then went primarily to help refugees. But, you know, as a film director, I obviously brought my camera, right? Tell us a little bit more about uh, your decision to make this film. When something very intense happens on the news, I think everybody feels this kind of need to want to do something. You know, where I was uh, in my career, I, I was like, you know, I could just go. My grandmother lives in central Poland. So I went there first and then took a train to uh, Przemysl which is where the, the, you know, the border town is kind of knew in the back of my head, I'd shoot something. I'm very influenced by some of the um, like William Wyler, John Houston films in World War II that were essentially like, it was interesting. You said in the beginning that the Anya tells people to help. That was the intention. Like most of my films are very stylistic, but this one, I really wanted to make a kind of a, a call to action film, which I would never do. One thing that maybe makes me a bad documentarian is I didn't want to bother anybody. I just felt like there was so many people like, oh, like, what happened? And they're like, I fled my home. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I'm doing terrible. Like, <laughs> How did you find Anya? Who is she? Is she a writer? I wanted some kind of narration. So I figured it'd be interesting. I've never really seen something where uh, somebody who's still in the country with a movie about refugees kind of ponders about, well, what happens to them? So I reached out to, uh, I spoke to a couple of journalists who were around there and they said that they have somebody, but that she was really, really strict about not, because this was like two weeks in, you know, I think now it might've been different, but no one knew what was going to happen at that point. So I think she was just very say, you know, you won't even speak to her. This is, this is somebody who will do it. Uh, her name is Anya. That's all you'll know. And that's it. I don't know anything uh, about her at all, really, other than that. We communicated through the journalists online. So you never met her face to face? No. 
Wow. And you don't actually know her life story or her family situation or Nope, that was the that was the deal. This is not a film where you interview people arriving in a foreign country and put a microphone in their face and say how does it feel? You say you didn't talk to them much. Did you talk to them at all? Did you get oh, any yeah, stories yeah, from off, them? Off, camera off 100 off for sure. I mean, uh, uh I don't speak Ukrainian. I speak a, a but my Polish is not good. But you know, obviously many of them speak English. Uh so I know I I hung out with them and talked to them for sure. I just I just didn't want to have the the camera on for that, you know. And that actually probably, you know, subconsciously informed how I ended up making it. You know, I, I don't think I ever really took notes even. It was just more, I was there for a few weeks, so obviously it was a, um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that impacted how I told the story and, and how it informed even some of my own politics on it. So. Uh, so you were shooting this for a few weeks. You must have gotten some stories from from when the camera was off. What, what did people uh, tell you? What did they want to tell you? What did they not want to tell you? I think, you know, they saw that I had a camera. I, I would tell them I'm a filmmaker when I was, you know, you know, one of the things that I was doing actually, at first I was just helping with like food and kind of like refugee camp, you know, the typical stuff like, hey, we need more water or this or that. But then I started to help um, a few, uh, there were soldiers essentially who would drive in from uh, Kiev, come to Pshemish and collect goods. Because at that point, Every, the Kremlin and the, the Pentagon thought the whole thing was going to collapse in a few days. So they didn't have the money that I, I know everybody, you know, that they're getting now. Yeah. So we were, they were uh, having me do runs in Polish, uh, like Polish Walmarts and getting like turnkits and medical equipment. And so I go and go there and go to the guy in, uh, who would go into Kiev and buy him the stuff, put it on the truck and he'd do runs. So <clears throat> that was an interesting thing because I got to actually speak to people who are essentially fighting and i think like now it's a lot of times people talk just about the very far east ukraine and and you know it it wasn't it, it's not that i mean it's it, it was a, especially in the, those first few days these first few weeks it was a full-scale invasion there was a lot of fear you know because it just mm -hmm. felt like this could be it yeah it was it was really close to those first those first few months you know you shot this just a few weeks into the war but of course it has wasn't finished and posted until the past uh, few days, and I notice a decision you made here was the film does not urge Americans to support, you know, Biden's call for Congress to approve $60 billion more in additional aid. You don't criticize the Republicans for blocking this. Instead, it concludes with Anya asking viewers to help refugees. Uh, how did you decide when you were finishing this film to focus on the refugees rather than on the political questions of American aid? I made the decision to focus on refugees. I'm not a politician. I'm not even, I wouldn't call myself a journalist. I wouldn't call myself even a documentarian. I'm a narrative mm -hmm. filmmaker first. And so I just felt like that was uh, making a film of what she said, sticking to that and what I saw was the most appropriate way to make the film. I mean, I, I just wanted to shoot what I saw and remind the audience of what happened, because I think there's a lot more support. I'm just talking about general solidarity. There's obviously way more support those first few months. And that's why I was reluctant to even release it those first few months, because everybody was Slava Ukraine. And I knew that things changed. And I knew that when everybody was, you know, in a year or, you know, I, I don't think I was expecting to wait this long. But I knew that eventually this would have more use now 
than it did when everybody was, you know, willing to adopt a Ukrainian child. Yeah. <laughs> now, and, and now, now it's more pushback as I felt now it was a good time. So um, because of those reasons, yeah. There's some big names associated with the production of this uh, film. Tell, tell us about them. Yeah, uh, so Janusz Kaminski, he's a cinematographer, mostly known for his work with Steven Spielberg. He was a cinematographer and won an Oscar for Schindler's List, Saber Private Ryan, and then pretty much, I think, every Spielberg since Schindler's List. Not Jurassic Park, though. I think that was someone else. And then also an amazing cinematographer in other movies like Jerry Maguire and Funny People and all that stuff. But he's really that the connection, I think, was, you know, he's Polish. He's somebody I reached out to pretty soon after. I was a big fan of his work and he immediately wanted to lend his name to it, which was really exciting because, you know, obviously this is, you know, very tertiary to the issue at hand. But as a, as a, as a big fan of his work, that was really cool. And then Liev Schreiber, Liev Schreiber's, uh, he's, you know, Ray Donovan in the famous TV show. He's a, a wonderful director too. He directed uh, a movie called Everything is Illuminated with Elijah Wood, which everybody recommends seeing. Uh, he's mostly known for his acting, but that's an incredible uh, film. We wanted to tie it into, um, you know, at least have a support system where if, if I'm telling a story of how to, how we should help people, especially people on the ground, just re refugees, I wanted to have something where people can actually do something. If it's a call to action film, you should have something that gives a little bit. So Leo Schreiber's Blue Check Ukraine kind of did it with us in a way that we were basically just, you know, I would say just directing people to that, that they want, they can donate. So I, I couldn't ask for two better people to kind of have one executive produce the film and then two, just somebody associated with that I can direct and help him and his charity. I wanted to ask you about the, the last shot. The second to the last shot is a scene of mothers and children expressing their love for each other. But you don't end on that note. Instead, the last shot, it looks like a keyhole shot from some kind of hidden camera looking down at a street from above, and we see a family of four walking down this street and narrow street, and then behind them, two dark cars turn the corner and start to follow them. It's a very ominous ending. How did you decide to end it that way? And what actually is going on in that shot? John, thank you for saying that. Not only anybody's really even brought that up, but just recently, right before it released, emphasized it more, the car honks at them. And to me, that was to say that this is all nice and dandy now, but soon these people, these refugees are going to start getting honked at and being told to get out of the way. And that's the ominous tone and the kind of warning it leaves. The short documentary is Ukrainians in Exile, a film by Yannick Ambrose. You can see it at thenation.com. Yannick, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. 
and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.